Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Um, most of you probably don't know this, but at the start of last fall, um, um, through the years of pastoring, I've been like, hey, there's some questions I don't know. There's some questions I don't understand. Um, I've kind of been a self-learner in my life. I've read a ton of books in a ton of different ways, but I was like, I need some formal training, so I decided to go back to school. And in going back to school, if you ever wonder why it sounds like his sermons the past year has sound like he spent like two hours on it, it's because I have. I haven't had time to. In fact, this sermon was written three hours on my car ride here last night. Um, 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 but basically, I went back to school, and this past semester, I had the chance to take this art class. It was um, analyzing art or art appreciation. And here's the deal. I wanted to take it because if you know me, I am not a visual person. I don't talk in images at all. If you listen to Lindsay preach, one of the great reasons why she's such a great preacher is that she preaches in images. She preaches in story. Let me tell you that it takes me a while to get Lindsay because I don't understand images. It's just really hard for me. And so I was like, maybe if I take this class, I can learn something. And so I'm going through this course, I'm learning a ton about art, and then there was just this moment, um, if you guys know Van Gogh, any of you, he did the Starry Night, which is one of your favorite pastor's uh, paintings, so if anyone wants to find the painting and buy it for her, I'm sure it's not expensive. (laughs) And here's the deal, she really just wants to pet it, right? She just wants to put her hands on it and feel the texture of the painting. Um, You can get that for her, Um, so you're welcome. Um, it may take a collection of us and everyone in town to buy that, but, uh, but um, I'm sure it's worth it. But basically, he has this other painting in which it's this church, and, and I would have got a picture of, uh, of it, but um, I just thought about it last night on my car ride here. But there's this yellow brick road, and there's light down at the bottom of this picture in the green grass. And as you go up, it gets darker and darker. And then at the top of this is this dark church that's hanging over this light. Um, And here's the deal. If you know nothing about Vincent Van Gogh, this makes no sense to us. And for me, if I would have looked at it, I'd been like, well, that's a dark but light picture. That's cool. Um, Without any training, I would have never known what that meant. But if you know anything about Van Gogh is that early in his life, he tried to be a minister. And he went about that process, and he failed miserably. And then after that, he was like, well, let me be an evangelist in God's church. I want to be this evangelist. And so he goes out and tries to do that, completely fails at that too. And not only is that, there seems to be in his heart this rejection of the church um, as a whole. And so Van Gogh, who's struggling with his mental health in his later years, paints this picture in yellow, the road. Yellow's his favorite color. It's what gives him hope. And so there's this yellow road, and it's long, and it goes all the way around this church. Um, But what you see is that there's no door for the church. And instead, there's this pillar, this 
this top of this church, which is looking over everything, just judging it and bringing darkness down on the light. And that's what Van Gogh felt about the church, that it had no doors, it had no room for him. So he turned, honestly, to what his gift was, which was art. But he felt like the church had no doors for him. It wouldn't accept him. And you would know nothing about that if you didn't know the history of Van Gogh or if you didn't know anything about art. And the Bible is kind of the same way. Um, Let me say this. The Bible is not written to Western rationalistic people. In fact, it was written by Near East people who had a Near East worldview, um, and they had a Near East historical context. And when we fail to read the Bible through that view and press upon it our Western rationalistic worldview, we miss the original intent and meaning of Scripture, all in one moment because we're pressing upon our own culture into it. While the historical context of the Near East is what the original authors attended. And so this is how we do this in the church is we'll take something that's really hard for us to understand. Uh, like when Jesus heals the man and he puts mud on his eyes and then um, he tells a blind guy to go walk to an ocean to, or to a river to wash it off his face. Um, and I've heard that preached a dozen of times, and typically what happens, instead of preaching about the physical healing that happened, they, what, what typically is done is say, well, that represents his soul, and Jesus is healing his soul. And so what happens there is we spiritualize something because we don't understand it, and we rationally think of it through that lens. Um, another one is, um, and there's books written by this, and it's a great book. I love this, right? There's a book called... Uh, Blessed, broken, and given, all from the bread of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. And what we do, because feeding 5,000 people is really hard to understand, right? It's above our heads. It's supernatural in nature. What we instead do is focus down on Jesus breaking bread, and we spiritualize that moment as being something big and huge instead of taking the full picture of it in context, right? Are you guys tracking with me here? And so maybe the context of the scripture isn't the focus of Jesus breaking the bread, but maybe it's that in the kingdom of God, all what you have is enough. So if you give it to Jesus, it multiplies out. And so typically what we do is we focus on these little things, and we like to spiritualize scripture. We like to rationalize it because some of it is too hard for our Western worldview to really take in. And we rationalize spiritual things we can't understand And that's the temptation we have with the scripture. That's the temptation of the transfiguration moment. It's a story that's hard to understand. And even putting it in that Near East historical context, it doesn't get any easier. Like, what's the purpose? Right? I've struggled with that for the past two weeks. What's the purpose of this moment? It's a story of transcendence. It's actually taking place in somewhat of an invisible realm that's not normal to us. And for an agent Near East person, this is no problem. For Western rationalistic people, which is how we see the world, we think there's God and us. We, we really deny that in between because we can't explain it. We can't understand it. It's not tangible to us. But an agent Near East person has no problem with that mystery. And so what I want to try my best to do today is take a look at it and not spiritualize it, But for us to look at it in the historical context, how a Jew would look at this moment and just try to figure out 
a few things that we can take from this moment. Because here's the truth, guys. I don't have all the answers for this text. I wish I did, and I don't think any of us will ever have all the answers of this text. It is a mystery. It is beyond us. So first off, when we read this story, we need to understand a little bit about, and let's say there's going to be some teaching. I don't like to do a lot of teaching in 20-minute preaching because it's a tad bit boring, but to understand and appreciate this moment, um, I have to do that. And so there's this thing called narrative theology, which focuses on the Bible as a whole, a dramatic account of God's activity in the, in the world, pointing to the past and looking to the future. And in this story, we see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. What are they talking about? Uh, the scripture tells us it's Jesus' departure. And that word departure, when you translate it to the Greek, it means death. But most importantly here, it means exodus. Departure is actually exodus. And Moses knew something about an exodus. Jews know something about an exodus. They got together on all the things they could have talked about. They were talking about the new exodus that Jesus would lead. We see Moses who led the first exodus and Elijah beside him representing the prophetic tradition, looking and talking to the Son of God who will lead this new exodus. What we see here then is a visible rep representation of God's unfolding plan in our world. That everything in the Old Testament is about to be filled in the exodus of Jesus Christ. Through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he is going to make a way to set us free from sin and bondage and our separation from God. The Messiah has arrived in this moment. That is the narrative theology overlooking this moment. Um, and that's great. I think that's awesome. But that still doesn't help me with the purpose. Because if you take it into that little moment, um, who does he take with him? Peter, James, and John. And so I really want to focus in on that because I think that's, for me, the reality of this moment. It's less about the narrative theology moment of it, but it's more about these disciples, Peter, James, and John. And so the second thing I want to say, this text is all about formation. That's what Jesus is doing here, and it speaks to us today. If we zoom in closer... We see Peter, James, and John. Now, how significant of a moment do you think this is for a Jew who was raised on stories about Moses and Elijah? You're a Jew, and you've been raised. And Moses, guys, Moses is the pillar of the Jewish faith. This isn't a nobody. This isn't just Moses in the Old Testament to them. This is actually the Exodus, the one who led them out of freedom. Next to God, it's Moses. And so to see Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus had to be a terrifying moment. It also had to be a surreal moment. Um, who we really know, and we see like Elijah, and the purpose of Elijah, right? Jesus tells us um, Elijah has been prophesied about. Elijah was just taken up into heaven, right? That's the story of Elijah. He didn't die a natural death according to the Bible, God just took him up to heaven. So it's this super, and I don't even know how to explain that. Don't look at me. I will never know how to explain that. In fact, that's the way I want to die. <laughs> like, Jesus, as I walk down today, just take me. Um, um, not like in a bad way, okay, but like supernaturally. I don't want to die that physical death. Like, Jesus, just take me, man. Um, 
But it's, it's a weird moment. Um, and what we see here are these two pillars. And for these Jews, it's more than a narrative theology moment. This moment was deeply personal. And not only do they get to witness that, the Father only speaks two times in the New Testament. This is one of them. He says, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Meaning, accept his words. Follow him. Take on his mind and begin to act accordingly. Align your life with his. This moment and all its transcendence was for them. For these confused, bewildered, and currently terrified disciples. For these disciples that Jesus told a few verses before this. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is the same to me in my words, the Son of Man will be the same to him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. I don't know, but that's not an easy word. That's a tough word. And after this, the next 40 days are going to be even tougher. In 40 days, they're going to see this rabbi they've been following their whole life get crucified. And so the before and after, there are these intense moments. And Jesus knew they needed more than knowledge, right? They needed more than an assent to a belief. They needed an experience that they could root their lives in and live from. Later in his life, Peter refers to this moment. In 2 Peter verses 1, 16 through 18, he says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter did this to a church that was, um, had some false teaching. And then that false teaching was that Peter's authority isn't wrong. It is wrong. That Peter is not the authority on Jesus. You need to follow all our authority on Jesus, which is Christ will not be coming back. And so what does Peter point to? He doesn't point to scripture. In fact, he points to what most people in faith traditions would say, you should never point to. And that's an experience. That's an emotion. That's a feeling. And that's what he does. He goes, here's my authority. When I went up on this holy mountain with Jesus, and I saw his glory, and the Father spoke and said this, this is why you should believe my teaching. This is why you should follow our teaching as apostles and deny the false teachers. And so he's using really an abstract moment to confirm his authority, which is super weird, right? And then secondly, Jesus used it for them to believe in the second. I mean, Peter used it for them to believe in the second coming, that the glory of Jesus, Jesus is coming again. And so for Jesus, he rooted his life in this experience. It made him bold And not sigh away from conflict. 
It was his experience when later he would be crucified that he could point back to and say, no, I believe this is real. I'm going to give my life to it. He could always point back to this moment. And when he saw the glory of Jesus, when he saw Moses and Elijah and he heard the Father's voice. And typically we're hard on Peter in this story because this is where I think we spiritualize it a tad bit. We talk about Well, Peter wants to build these tabernacles and he wants to stay on this mountain, but really we need to come down from this mountain. But this is a holy moment. And what Jesus knew in the Old Testament, that the presence of God exists in a shelter, in a tabernacle. And so what he wants to do is set up these makeshift tabernacles in which he can take the presence of God from here and keep on going. He can carry with it, he can carry it with him everywhere. And so really, Peter is acting how I think any of us would in this moment. It's a significant moment. And so what is it about this moment of the transfiguration that we need to root our lives in? And here's the issue. Um, It's really abstract. Because for Peter, it was. And I think it's this. I think it is to be reminded of the present and practical value of the invisible world. Something that is Born to us. We have to be rooted in it. Peter, John, and James in this moment had more than mental assent to a fact about Jesus. They got knowledge and experience that they could root their lives in that would form their lives. To a Western rationalistic thinking world, there is God and then there is us. To this Eastern mindset, there is God and us and there's this in between. N.T. Wright says this. What the story of Jesus on the mountain demonstrates for those with eyes to see or ears to hear is that just as Jesus seems to be the place where God's world and ours meet, where God's time and ours meet, so he is also the place where, so to speak, God's matter, God's new creation intersects with ours, that in-between. As with everything else in the gospel narrative, the moment is extraordinary but soon over. It is exactly in this invisible realm where the kingdom exists, linking heaven and earth. So when we walk into our workplaces or when we enter the dull, ordinary parts of our lives or when tragedy is upon us, we need to be rooted in the reality of the transfigured Jesus who is the fulfillment of every promise of God and that he and his kingdom is with us. It's with us. Even though we can't see it, Even though sometimes we can't feel it, the greatest reality in all of life is that the kingdom is with us. Let me say this. Jesus was no more God on the mountaintop than he was down below. He wasn't any different. He was still God, God in the flesh. And in our dull, ordinary times, God is still God. He's still present. And I want to say this to you because I think this is where this gets hard. Um, It's where it gets hard for me. Invisibility and the hiddenness of God are not abandonment. Because you don't feel him doesn't mean he's abandoned you. There was a time before or after the transfiguration in which the disciples of Jesus um, were seemingly abandoned. Where they felt abandoned. But the reality is God was still present with them. But these moments in which something is pulled back, and what I mean by that is, have you ever had a transcendent moment or a moment in which God and his presence was real to you? 
right? How much, right? If, if I ask you, has God's presence ever felt tangible and real to you? That's what I'm talking about. In these moments that we see that there is a way of God being present to us in hiddenness, and we have to understand this, hiddenness, the hiddenness of God, which is really hard, is actually good for us. And I know it's hard to understand, right? The manifest presence is what we should want. It's what we should always want. But God in his hiddenness gives us mercy and love. And it is actually this kind of loving God that he is that we don't always live in these moments of these manifests and transfiguration or that we always feel his presence. Um, let me ask you something. When you lived in your house with your parents and their presence was was manifested, did you get to be self-determining? Did you get to make your own decisions? Uh, no, um, and I would lie to my parents, right? I would be like, hey, what you doing, Chad? I was like, I'm gonna go practice and play basketball because that's what I did. I just go drive around town, right? And then I'd come back and they'd be like, Chad, what were you doing at this? That wasn't the gym. I was like, oh, just driving around town. Why? I just really didn't want to be around you. I didn't want your presence hanging over me. Let me have some space. Let me have some meantime. Let me make some of my own decisions. Let me be self-determining, right? Because in my presence, I, in, my, in my parents' presence, I couldn't be self-determining. And that's kind of why God doesn't feel so close. If God's manifest presence is always with us, then I'm going to be quite honest with you. You don't want that when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you kind of want to flip that person off, right? You, like, you don't want that manifest moment when, you're, when you want that moment to gossip, right? I don't want his judgment in that moment. I don't want it at all. Um, and then God in his mercy allows us to be self-determining beings. That's why his presence often is hidden, Faith, like faith, Hebrews said, is the evidence of things unseen. And if God's presence is always manifested, we can't operate in faith. We can't move in faith. And so the hiddenness of God is extremely important, and it forms our soul. It's in those moments where God seems distant, where he feels like he isn't answering your prayers, is where your character really comes to life. It's where we really start forming ourselves in the will and way of Jesus. And in these transcendent transfiguration moments, I want to say this, they don't need to be compared to the normal dull moments of everyday formation. You know those days, weeks, and months of prayer or practice when it seems nothing is happening, where God doesn't speak, and everyone's saying God speaks, I ain't hearing them, right? Um, I'm in one of those now. It's not fun. Um, And because the transfiguration moments, guys, and hear me, this is something I talked with uh, Daniel and Dave Webb about, that I'm struggling. Like, I hear God. I'm used to hearing God, but I'm not hearing him in these moments, And I want you to hear this because this will help your soul. The transfiguration moments are no more truer or valuable of an experience of God than the hidden moments when he's not there. They're no more valuable. The reason being because they both form us. One forms us profoundly, and that's when he seems hidden. A big part of Christian spirituality 
of following Jesus is learning to see behind the dull and boring or even painful hidden realities that there is a great reality always signing, always inviting us into. So it's in these dull's moment that we learn to live by the truth of those transfiguration moments. And that's where the formation of our life happens is in those moments. And the invitation on the Sermon on the Mount is, hey, get you an experience. Go for it. There's a reason why everyone is flocking to Asbury. Because there's a tangible manifest presence there that we haven't seen for a while. So everyone's going to get that experience. And let me say this. When you get an experience, you get emotion. Peter did. He wanted to be, build three shelters. Right? We want the experience. And that's good. Get you one. There's nothing wrong with asking Jesus for one. Um, but also understand that behind it, when you come down from the mountains, God is no less real. God is still real. He is still present. And he is still with you. And what that transfiguration moment lets us do is form that into our daily lives. That's the invitation. And for Peter, that's what it did. Right? He's there dealing with this boring issue in this church, a false teacher, and he points back and he says, there was this time when I saw Jesus on the holy mountain and then the father spoke, this is my beloved son and who I am well pleased, listen to him. And he's able to root himself and ground himself in that. And so Jesus invites us into this kind of spirituality, which is Christian spirituality. This is Christian formation. And so as we come into Selah today, um, and here's the deal. I understand this sermon may seem really abstract. It's because this is an abstract moment. It's hard for our Western minds to wrap our minds around because I can't give it to you. I wish I could bottle it up and give it to you. In fact, I've been trying my whole life to get the kingdom, to bottle it up, to give it to people, and I found out I can't do it. It's frustrating, right? I pray for one knee, it gets healed. I go to the other one, it doesn't get healed. I'm like, Jesus, why? And I'm always trying to bottle up that moment thinking we got some momentum, and we come over here and there's no momentum. There's nothing. And that's hard to rationalize, right? Other than to say there's this in-between and I can't understand it, but I'm invited into it. And I think that's the invitation for you. I think it's the invitation for us. And so I have a few questions for you to stay as we come to Selah, and it's this. What are you paying attention to? If God feels so distant, it feels like he hasn't been near to you for a while, what are you paying attention to? Um, what is getting in your way to see and know Jesus as he truly is. And the transcendent, but also the dull moments of the Christian walk. So what are you paying attention to? The second one is, where do you need to be freed? Right? Jesus is, in the narrative theology, this new exodus. And in him, he has come to free us from the bondage of sin, from bondage in general, and separation from God. And so in Jesus, we experience God. We get to know God. And so when I ask you that is, where do you need to be free? 
And so I want us to take a few moments, and let me say this, this is one of those moments every Sunday, and this is one of the reasons why I love Sundays, why I love this room, is because it's in these moments we can come to the reality, yes, this is something we do every week. There are things set in there every single week that we normally do, and you can come in here, and you can go through the motions, or you can come in here and slowly pay attention, not to what we have to do after, not what's going on in this moment, not if my favorite song is being played or not being played, but we can pay attention to the God who is present. And we can form ourselves by becoming aware of him in a moment that sometimes feels dull. I love Sundays, guys, but let me tell you, some of them aren't always hopping, right? And so we come in here and we form ourselves. God, what are you doing and what are you speaking to me? And then asking God, where do I need to be freed? 